But I would like to begin this morning by asking you a question. When was the last time you saw God? Can you think of it? The last time something occurred and you immediately recognized God's presence in your midst. It's a funny thing, whether we are in a small group from church, a Sunday school class, or whether we're standing around the water cooler at work, God's sightings seem to be celebrated and even sought after. I mean, there's the miraculous, right? It's pretty hard not to love a good miracle story. You know, those modern-day accounts of seemingly hopeless situations where suddenly the highly improbable occurs at the last possible second, second, giving evidence to a loving and gracious God who stepped in and intervened, making the impossible possible. Just last month, John Smith, a 14-year-old boy from St. Louis, Missouri, was touted as the recipient of a miracle by NBC News. You might not have known they're the ones handing these out these days, but they deem this a miracle. Smith and two of his buddies were walking across a frozen pond when suddenly John was sucked violently through the ice into the freezing waters of the pond below where he remained trapped for nearly 15 minutes. When rescuers arrived on the scene and fished him out of the pond, he had no pulse despite attempts to resuscitate him for nearly 45 minutes as they transported him by ambulance to a local medical facility. Still unresponsive and without a pulse upon arriving at the hospital, Smith's mother entered the room in which doctors continued their efforts to resuscitate the boy, and she began praying out loud, asking God to revive her son. The emergency room doctor reports that within two minutes of the mother's arrival, the boy's heart began steadily beating. And after battling other life-threatening complications from the accident, such as extremely low body temperatures that threatened to shut down his other vital organs, Smith made a steady and unprecedented recovery from the seemingly fatal ordeal. The attending physician, Dr. James Garrett, said Smith's case remains like nothing he's ever seen before, a bona fide miracle. Miracles do happen, and God is clearly seen in these moments. Perhaps you've been privy to or even a recipient of such an act of God. But what if you haven't? In a room this size, I'm guessing there are many of us who could say, we don't really have a John Smith story in our lives. We've not looked death in the face and overcome it or defied the odds of science or medicine or any other force on this earth. So what then? Some people will go looking for miracles. There have been plenty who have, who have reported God sightings in far less spectacular ways. You might be familiar with some of these. There's God in the banana, Jesus in the banana. <laughs> Jesus in the candy bar. You're gonna have to look a little harder for this one. <laughs> Jesus in the plywood. And my personal favorite, Jesus in the Cheetos. Now, while these are quite a bit less sensational than the John Smith story, isn't it interesting that people will give time to this, that they will cite the importance to them of finding God in their midst, even in such ridiculous ways? It sort of speaks to this truth, this, this very primal desire that we have as humans to know that we're not alone in this world, to know that we're in the presence of God, our creator and sustainer, to know that the one who gave us life is living life with us, near us. 
during these past five weeks of Lent as we have journeyed with the Israelites from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, we've certainly seen where they had grown accustomed to seeing the miraculous hand of God. From God seeing and separating Israel as his own, delivering them from the strong arm of Pharaoh in Egypt, testing them in the wilderness, and then calling them to be set apart for him, making his covenant with them through the Ten Commandments. Certainly, Israel had seen God's power and majesty on display and to their benefit. And yet, while Israel had certainly come to know God in the miraculous, they would struggle, as I think sometimes we often do, to identify him in the mundane, everyday moments of our journeys. Now, just as a refresher, leading up to the point of the text that we'll look at today in Exodus 32 and 33, you'll recall that God had confirmed his covenant with Israel, speaking to them the words of the Ten Commandments and giving them instructions for holy living. Moses then leaves Aaron in charge of the people as he obeys the call of God to go up and meet with him on Mount Sinai, where God will give him the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. That's the place that God had intended to dwell amongst his people. And Moses also received the stone tablets with the inscription of the Ten Commandments on them at that time. I don't know about you, but when somebody says to me, hey, can you watch my kids for a little bit? I'll be right back. I don't usually think that I'm in for a long-term venture. But Aaron quickly realizes after 40 days and 40 nights that he has a bit of a situation on his hands. Despite the covenant that God has made with Israel to be with them, the people start to get antsy. No one knows exactly where Moses went, how long he's going to be gone, or when or if he'll return. They're in the middle of nowhere and probably not real sure how they got there because remember, they had been more or less following Moses blindly up to this point, and you'll recall he's now missing in action. Have you ever wondered if God had left the building? Has he ever seemed distant or silent despite your prayers? Despite your pleas for guidance or direction, even daily provision? I think this is where Israel was at at this point. So they took matters into their own hands and somehow coerced Aaron into creating the golden calf. You remember that story. Different scholars will tell you different things about this statue. Some say it was a god that they were familiar with from back in Egypt. But others believe it was simply the Israelites' attempt at giving Yahweh physical form, an attempt to comfort themselves by summoning him, or at least his perceived likeness, into their midst, for fear that he had left them. And how on earth would they survive here where he had led them without him? They'd grown so accustomed to seeing God move in miraculous ways, in plagues and parting seas, in water from rocks, manna and quail every morning. Now without such evidence, when a more normal pace of life had kicked in, they grew fearful that they had been abandoned and they struggled to find God in the commonalities of their lives. Israel committed an overt act of offense against God. And God, who was completely aware of what was going on down at the camp, even while he was up on the mountain with Moses, was enraged. He sent Moses down to deal with what he called his stiff-necked people. This wasn't really a compliment. This would mean obstinate, stubborn, even hard-headed. And he told Moses to leave him alone so that he could burn in his anger and make plans to destroy them. 
God is not happy right now. And yet Moses, always the shepherd, makes an attempt to intercede on behalf of his people. He pleads with God to have mercy on them and not to destroy them. He reminds God of the covenant made with Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars and to give them the land promised as an inheritance. And we read in chapter 32, verse 14, that God relents. So Israel may have escaped the wrath of God in round one, but I assure you they will deal with the wrath of Moses in round two. Moses returns to the camp and finds that Israel hasn't just built the statue, as if that wasn't bad enough, but they've just plain gone wild. The camp is in complete disarray, and Moses, in his righteous fury, this is probably going to be my understatement of the morning, but he lets them know that they've royally messed up hoping he can stand in the gap again. Now that he knows God will not be destroying his people, Moses returns to God and now pleads for their forgiveness. He even offers himself as an offering of atonement, a substitution, if you will, but God wants nothing to do with this trade. He sends Moses away back down to Israel with the reality that while he will not go back on his word, he will deliver them to the promised land. He will not be going with them any further. Instead, he will send an angel before them to ensure their safe arrival, but he himself can no longer journey with them because he cannot be in the presence of such sinfulness. When Moses returns with this word to Israel, they finally start to understand the extent of their error. You've heard the expression, you never know what you had until it was gone. This is where Israel would be at this point. While they grew impatient with God, while he and Moses were up on the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights, they now realize that what they truly face is the absence, the complete and total absence of God, his unwillingness to go with them any further. And while I'm sure that in any other circumstance, an angel of the Lord would be quite an escort, the reality is setting in for Israel that when Almighty God himself is with you, There is complete and utter rest in knowing that all your needs will be met, just as they had been up till this point in the journey. I have to wonder if right now Israel is having some flashback moments, recalling the many miraculous manifestations of God along the way and wondering how on earth they'll continue. How much longer is this journey going to take and how much more difficult is it going to become without God at the helm? In a final effort of reconciliation, Moses heads to the tent of meeting. You'll remember that's the place Moses set up right outside the camp where he would go to meet with God. And he goes there and he pleads with God to change his mind, to accompany them for the rest of their journey. At this point in chapter 33, verse 12, we enter the tent with Moses. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, But you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I can understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. You see, Moses nor Israel had any assurance of what things would be like from this point on in the journey till they reached their destination. 
There was some indication of impending danger or trouble back in chapter 33, verse 2, when God said he'd send an angel before them to knock out anyone who might oppose their entrance to the promised land. But in these words, we hear Moses' desperation, his deep plea with God to go with them himself, to be their escort in the journey. And in verse 14, the Lord replies, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine. Did you hear that, Moses? God's listening to you. He's willing. He seems to be changing his mind. And yet Moses is so caught up in imagining what this will be like if God does not go with them that it's as if he doesn't hear the Lord. And so he says, he continues on in verse 15, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence, sets, for your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. And God, patient and gracious God, responds to Moses once again, saying, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. The problem solved, right? God is forgiving the heinous act of Israel. He is forgetting his fury, and he's returning to the head of the pack in the journey across the wilderness. So all should be well, right? And yet Moses much like Israel, and much like us, has become a bit of a miracle junkie. He's grown accustomed to and comforted by the visible and tangible acts of God, which have accompanied him up to this point in his journey of leadership. So he pushes the envelope just a little further. And in verse 19, he says, then show me your glorious presence. Hello, earth to Moses. God just had mercy on you and on your people, and you know that's a pretty big deal now that he's going to come with you because you remember the deliverance from Egypt, the plagues, the parting of the sea, the water from the rock, the manna, and the quail, but you want more? You want to see God's face? At this point, I have mixed emotions. Part of me wants to bat Moses upside the head, and the other part of me can completely understand where he's coming from. If God had provided evidence of his presence in the past, why not now? Why not in this way? Moses was on a roll, really, in terms of asking for things from God and getting them, so was this one last request really that big of a deal? And yet God uses this moment to set the record straight. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. He continues, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Who is Moses to demand a command performance from the Lord? No one. And while God makes it clear that though he is most certainly still the one in charge, still the one calling the shots, 
He graciously demonstrates his understanding of Moses' need for a tangible affirmation of this promise. Recognizing the difference between seeing God's face and seeing his goodness, Dennis Kenlaw once wrote, you can have a spiritual experience that is very exciting and yet is contentless. Or you can gain an insight into the character of the eternal that will change you forever. Moses asked to see God's glory, but God shows Moses his goodness, something that he's already quite familiar with and yet still very much in need of. How often are we like Moses? We've been assured by God that he's with us, that he dwells with us. In addition to the promise he gave to Moses back in verse 14, and then the reiteration of that promise to go with them and to give them rest in verse 17, he tells us in Joshua, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In Deuteronomy, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Even Jesus uses his final words before ascending to the Father to speak comfort and assurance to us when he says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Again and again, God reminds us of the promise of his presence, that he dwells amongst us. And yet we, like Moses and like Israel, have such expectations of what God's presence should look like, expectations of the miraculous and of seeing God's face. And I fear that in these expectations, in our search for God's presence through the miraculous, we are missing the everyday evidence of God's nearness to us in the everyday moments of our lives. How can we miss this? The nearness of God when we consider just the basic realities of our existence. That in the past 60 seconds, you have inhaled and exhaled life-giving breath somewhere between 40 and 60 times, and you've never once had to think about doing it. Or how about thermoregulation? I didn't know what this word was until this past week when I was thinking to myself, what all has to happen in order to sustain a normal body temperature of 98.6 degrees? I won't go into it explaining it, and the scientists in the room will appreciate that because I really have no idea what I'm talking about. But people, this is amazing stuff. And how is this not evidence to us of God's nearness, that he sustains and keeps us for every moment he has ordained for our lives? And yet, because we are people who long to be wowed, people who are drawn to the sensational and the spectacular, we are prone to place expectations on God and how he should demonstrate his presence in our midst. Bible scholar Peter Enns once said, we often think of how God ought to be rather than how he has actually revealed himself. If we learn anything from these last verses in Exodus 33, it's that God is God. He will be faithful to his word. He will go with us and we can rest in that assurance. But ultimately, he's the one calling the shots. He will make his presence known when and how he so chooses. And he cannot be domesticated, neither in the fashioning of idols nor the manipulation of his creation. As a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust atrocities once testified, 
a God who limits himself to the actions that we can understand, could it possibly be God? Fast forward now, somewhere between 13 and 1500 years after this interaction between Israel and Yahweh. Still faithful to his promise to go with them, the word has become flesh and is dwelling amongst Israel. Jesus, on one hand, his arrival certainly was miraculous, though few would recognize it as such, but a virgin birth. And yet at the same time, he arrived in such a lowly, mundane manner, in a cattle stall. And for 33 years, the presence of God is tangible amongst his people. The miraculous absurdity of God in flesh, almost too extreme to be comprehended. And so we arrive on Palm Sunday, the day that marks the occasion when God's people welcomed their Lord into Jerusalem. The very deliverance that they had been awaiting from the very beginning was underway. And you better believe that Israel had expectations of God in this moment, just as they did back in the desert all those years before. As the people gathered and threw their cloaks in the road to pave a way worthy of their king, surely they expected that what they were about to witness and be a part of was some kind of spectacular and grand political revolt. That in the same dramatic and pronounced way God had delivered their ancestors from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, so he would now dramatically and decisively deliver them from the oppression of Caesar and the Roman government. As they waved their palms in the air, surely they assumed that this was a well-orchestrated setup for an instantaneous moment of liberation, where God would kick butt and take names and establish the fact that the kingdom of God would win over the kingdom of earth. And they weren't completely wrong, were they? And yet how strange it must have seemed as they postured themselves outside the city gates awaiting Jesus' arrival when they expected such pomp and circumstance to see Jesus, God in flesh, peacefully entering the city on, of all things, a donkey, to see him weep for Jerusalem and then willfully surrender himself to the forces of Rome's government just a few days later. I get caught up in thinking about it sometimes and I wonder, if I had been there, would I have missed it? Would I have been looking over his shoulder beyond Jesus to see if the armies that I would surely think he would gather would be following behind, positioning myself for a moment of rescue, and all the while missing the reality that God himself was in my midst? They weren't seeing what they expected, but they were seeing God. The question is, did they realize it? Or were they, like the Israelites, all those many years before in the desert, blinded by their grandiose expectations of God? If we are the people of God, people who are not only saved from something, but for something, perhaps we have been entrusted with the promise of his presence so that we know and understand that God is not a deity who is removed from his people, who sits in the heavens and only waits a moment of crisis to enter the scene in grand fashion, but rather an ever-present, loving, and gracious God who dwells with us, who is present in the midst of every moment and every second of our lives, who is incapable of being domesticated 
or limited to the manifestations of my human imagination. A few years ago, I had a friend who went through a traumatic crisis. After he was publicly confronted about a sinful offense, he had to wade through days and weeks of humiliation and shame and guilt, and he recalls feeling remorseful to his core and yet numb to the world around him. He was simply stunned by his shame. He buried himself in an emotional cocoon of sorts, secluding himself in many ways and wondering if the storm would ever pass. He pleaded with God to forgive him, to take away his shame in some miraculous way to remove him from this situation, even if it meant death. And while God would forgive him, and in time allow him to rise above his shame, there was no miracle. There was no moment of removal because God had another way of seeing him through the desert. In the middle of this crisis, my friend tells me that he stood in front of the mirror one day and the only thought that came to his mind was, man, I need a haircut. Such a strange thought to have in the middle of crisis, don't you think? And yet he says, as he ran the clippers over his overgrown locks of hair, he suddenly had a keen sense of God's presence, realizing that despite his own feelings of shame and embarrassment, which were causing him to feel near death emotionally, the hair he was clipping from his head was a reminder to him that God was still there, still giving him life and breath, his hair still growing, another day passing, another day that he had been given for life. And that despite his circumstances, God was near, dwelling with him, manifesting his presence, not in the miraculous, but in this very ordinary, common, everyday occurrence of his life. What would it look like if we, God's people, were more intentional to see God dwelling amongst us if we stopped looking past his everyday goodness in search of his glory and paused and recognized him in the seemingly mundane moments of our lives, if we did as one author said and trusted God's promise more than our perception. I mean, think about it. What if we acknowledged him in the very common things we do every day, in meeting with coworkers, in raking the yard, in driving to work, in changing a diaper, or in helping children with homework? even in sitting in a moment of silence? Would our identity as his people become more obvious? Not because we start standing on the street corners pointing out every manifestation of God that we can possibly find and chastising those who still can only find him in the miraculous, but because in our own recognition of God in the mundane, we become people who are grateful, people who recognize the audience for which we labor and serve people who become less concerned with the gods of this world, uh, money, success, status, because we are fully aware that the one true God is in our midst of his past provisions, of his present grace, and of his future faithfulness.